So I, I'm a um, I'm a big believer in like you, you are you are the owner of your career. You know you mm-hmm. got it. You need to make sure you are in control of your career, and your career is not controlling you. Yeah. So for for me, I had spent an amazing decade at Google, and I would do it again one hundred times over. It's an unbelievable company. I'm a huge believer in tech as a force for good. It was where I feel like I grew up as a professional. Um, And I always tell people like I left a dream job for an even dreamier job. And that's, that's what, that's what you wanted. That is what I would wish for anybody who's listening, which is you want to be leaving something when you feel rich, when you feel fulfilled, when you feel like I have learned amazing things and I leave with a full heart what up? It's Extra Video. That's the voice of Kara Shortsleeve, today's guest. Kara is the CEO of the Leadership Consortium. After more than a decade at Google and YouTube, Kara is over at the Leadership Consortium running some programs uh, really specialized in helping develop the leadership skills of women and people of color, uh, just doing some really tremendous work. And, and Carrie even says on the podcast, like her goals at the leadership consortium doesn't even need to exist 10 years from now, because if she does her job and can find economies of scale across the globe with all the big organizations that they're running their programs for, then, uh, then hopefully we'll have this sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion that, that we need um, to sort of allow folks from all communities to really thrive and have access to opportunities. So this is just a great conversation. Um, Kara is a tremendous uh, human and and working on a really neat initiative out of Boston that I'm really excited to introduce to you all. Enjoy the conversation and talk soon. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with the Leadership Consortium CEO, Kara Shortsleeve. Hi, Kara. Hey, Zach. Good to have you today. Thanks for joining me. You bet. I'm, I'm already scoring points because this single dial-in Uber conference line is, is, has in, it impressed upon you that, that I'm some savvy media producer. So thanks for making <laughs> me feel good. You bet. <laughs> how's your, uh, how's your day going? How's your, how's your winter going? It is, it is good. We are recording on one of the warmer days in February, which feels like a well-deserved uh, deep thaw from, from the past uh, couple weeks. So I feel good. Nice. Yeah. Likewise. I went on my first run in a couple months yesterday outside and oh. it felt, it felt nice even with the mask on. Uh, totally. So, yeah. So, so Kara for listeners, I thought it'd be nice for you to just give, give a quick overview of your role at the leadership consortium and sort of your, your goals um, with that leadership development platform, just so folks kind of have a frame of reference of, of where you currently work and, 
and some of your goals there. And then we can kind of go back in time and, and, and talk about how you, how you got to this role. And then, and then we can chat a bit about, you know, Boston and beyond and, and maybe what we're seeing kind of heading into the future. Sure. So I run a business called the leadership consortium, as you mentioned, and the mission of the business is to help more and varied leaders thrive and really to change, just to change the look and feel of leadership. So we are a pretty mission-driven organization. We work with amazing clients across a lot of different categories, um, but what they share is just a huge commitment to human capital and you know the desire to, to do better. So um, in a nutshell, what we do is we deliver development programming that really develops the skill set around inclusive leadership. I know we will go into it, but I have a background in um, technology, so I'm a big fan of technology and tech-enabled businesses. And TLC um, delivers all of our programming virtually, so we're a um, super interesting model. And I've been running that business for about three years, and it's Boston born and bred, which makes me very happy um, because I am also Boston born and bred. So it's a nice way to be able to do something that I'm truly passionate about with an amazing team and be able to do it here, uh, here in town. Nice. Wonderful. Appreciate that overview. A nice, nice segue in, into the, the, one of the questions I had for you, which is you grew up in Boston, but sp- specifically Belmont, right? I did. I did. How so was, how was that? How was your Belmont upbringing? My Belmont upbringing <laughs> was wonderful. I, um, I, I always tell people sort of my, my childhood was, was like very idyllic in many ways in terms of really big, rich family, you know, rich in family, as my grandmother would say. Yeah. We had, you know, probably your classic Boston family, good Irish Catholics with, you know, far too many children. So I have <laughs> many, many cousins, many aunts and uncles, everybody stayed local. So it felt very rich in family. Um, we had a big emphasis on sort of personal excellence and personal growth and development. So a big focus on education. So a lot of the work, you know, my family was doing was really trying to ensure the the next generation, as they say, um, was really benefiting from, you know, amazing education and sort of self-improvement. So Belmont was a, was a great place to grow up. Um, and have very fond memories. I, I don't live far from there now. And so I always get a chance to drive back through and it, it, uh, it brings me great joy. Nice. Did you, so you mentioned in the pre-podcast, yeah. um, Q and a that you, you had three generations under one roof. What was, yes, what was that yes, like? Sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Family dinners must've been fun. <laughs> Family dinners. Oh, you, this, you should, Family dinners are a real thing in the uh, in the short sleeve house. I kept I kept my maiden name, so my you know my household name growing up was the short sleeves as well. Um, we I, I was really fortunate. My both of my parents had great jobs, and so my grandmother, so my um, paternal grandmother, lived with us and did all of our childcare. And so she lived in the home with us. She was super instrumental, obviously, in, you know, who I am today, because it was really a tag team effort with my parents and, and with her. And it's funny, you mentioned family dinners. Family dinners were the one thing uh, that was always required in my house. So you nice. could do 
any activities. You could play any sports. You could do anything, but you had to be home for dinner. And it was like the one moment where the chaos sort of um, receded to the edges. And we had, you know, an hour long conversation with my, you know, I'm one of four. So the four siblings, the two parents, my grandmother, inevitably some, some other relative. Um, But it was always very, it was a calming moment in an otherwise absolutely crazy and yet very wonderful, uh, busy household. Nice. We're, um, that's something the pandemic's afforded, right? Is sitting down with our families this past year and just having dinner every night. And hopefully we can kind of keep that habit going when things go back to some sort of new normal. Um, one, one of the things that my, my wife and I have been doing with our three and a half year old daughter is something I learned from, uh, the CEO of fabric media, uh, the company that I work for, um, but it's pows and wows at the dinner table just to kind of facilitate conversation. Like what are your, what were your kind of highs and lows for the day? Um, was there like, did you guys just launch into conversation or was it sort of like, you know, pass the, pass the mic around, around the dinner table and, and kind of catch up on everyone's, everyone's days, any, any fun sort of, or routines or habits that you would share? Totally. I, I love, I love Paws and Wilds. I love um, sort of Rose and Thorns. I love all of those. And it's a great way. It's funny, you know, I run a business obviously around inclusive leadership and it is a great way to instill in people the idea of like taking turns and getting everybody's voice in the mix and sort of the equality of all the different opinions. Um, what we did growing up is we would, dinner would always be by candlelight. So you'd have to turn the lights out. You all sit down, you say grace. And then our sort of routine was, everybody got to thank God for one thing that day. And it was really a way of saying, what, you know, what's your highlight? Um, but it was, a, it was a neat fabric that we all shared. And it was a way, as I said, to make sure the loudest among us was not, was not the only one heard and that each of us, you know, got our opportunity to share the thing that had made us, you know, feel special or grateful that day. Nice. So I, I love, love those. I love, I love those. And it's so cool that you're doing that with your three and a half year old. It's just, it's such a great, such a great way to, to, to just connect with each other. So that's amazing. Yeah. Thanks. Um, and thanks for sharing. So the talk about the impact of, you know, you, you said three other siblings, were you the, it sounds like you were, were you the youngest or I, I, was, you I was number three of four. So mm-hmm. The old, the oldest three of us were all within five years, and then my my the youngest of us was seven years younger than me. And my my parents always, I don't even know if it's in jest to be honest, Zach, but they would always <laughs> say that Michelle, my my youngest sister, they always said she'd be a lot older, a lot older if I wasn't such a hard kid. <laughs> so, I think they needed a break after the first three of us, but um, yeah. you know, it was a neat dynamic. I felt like I had the the luxury of sort of being the youngest of the first three, I was always in hot pursuit of my siblings. I felt like they were just epic in what they were able to accomplish and who they were. So I feel like I got the drive of like chasing excellence because these two amazing humans were just doing, they are just sort of ridiculously impressive people. And I still feel like I chase them. Um, One's an eye surgeon and one's doing amazing work in finance. Um, but then it was the beauty of also having a younger sibling who wasn't, you know, so close to you that there was any, you know, that there was any ill will. She was seven years younger. And I feel like it was the most amazing way to breed empathy and to just, Mm. I think it's like 
absent being a parent, which I am now, it's the closest thing I, now I can associate it with like maternal instinct, but before I had words for it, it was just this unbelievable, you know, feeling proud and just unconditional love for someone. So I feel like my, my child, my child rank placement, uh, prepared me with some, with some awesome life skills. Awesome. So, so you grew up in Belmont, you're, you know, as you're approaching high school graduation, like, like you have these two high achieving older siblings that were off blazing their paths already. Um, did you have a sense of what you wanted to do? And like, you know, what, what did you sort of seek out at that point? And, and like, you know, which, which college did you choose and why? Yeah. You know, it's, this is, um, I want I want this to come across the right way, but both both of my older siblings had gone to Harvard, and I desperately wanted my own place, but I desperately wanted a place of excellence. And so I discovered Williams College, which is still one of my fo- most favorite places in the universe. I always joke that I still bleed purple and gold, and it was just an amazing academic institution. I played sports all through you know, high school, college, and after. So it was an amazing place to be an athlete. And it was my own place. It was a place that I could go for the first time and be, you know, the first short sleeve to show up and have no preconceived notions of what that meant for me as a human. So I had an, I, I adored Williams. I, I, I would recommend it to anybody. And I, you know, macro trend, I feel like it was really important for me to find a place that fit me there was a big pull for me, obviously, to think about, should I, should I follow? I've always followed my siblings. Should I, should I try to follow them where they are? And it was um, a really important lesson for me on like finding the context in which I will thrive and how that's okay. And, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't put any distance between me and them, but allows us each to be like the humans we were meant to be. Nice. Cool. Um, I like I like that rationale for sort of bucking the trend of uh, of, of of straight to Harvard. Although you do you do end up find, you, you, you do end up finding yourself there when you when you go to Harvard Business School. But before uh, yes. we, before we yes, go there, yep. so it's interesting. I was looking at like I was double checking on your LinkedIn. Like, okay, you graduated from Williams College in two thousand. What an interesting year to graduate! Like, like. <laughs> There's always, I'm, I'm fascinated, you know, that's why I'm doing this. Like I'm really, there's a, there's there's such interesting stories, you know, everywhere, but okay. I mean, that's a really interesting time for sort of like tech, you know, bubble, Mm. increasing bubble, bubble soon bursting, like repercussions of that. Like what, what was the job market like in 2000? Like what at that point did you want to do? And then like, what happened in the next three years? Um, yeah, I imagine there were some struggles and then like what ultimately sort of led you to, to Harvard Business School. Yeah, your lesson is if you ever want to determine when to change jobs, like don't do it within a year of me doing it because <laughs> markets always crash. And I don't know if that's uh, cause and effect. Hopefully it's coincidence. Um, but yeah, so I, I graduated Williams in 2000. You know, at the time, it's so interesting looking back at it because at the time, the, the organizations that recruited on campus were more traditional sort of professional services organizations. So a lot of the financial institutions, a lot of the consulting institutions. 
and teach for America. And that's like literally what I remember being like programmatically accessible at Williams. Yeah. Now I look back, you know, now when I go back and, you know, commune at Williams and try to bring good jobs there, it's fascinating to see the likes of all the tech companies recruiting, you know, but it's, but you put yourself back in time and it was 2000. And for me, I'd come out of an amazing college. Um, and I had a liberal arts degree and I was an English art history major. So I would do it again a hundred times. But as I sort of reflected on, Hey, what do I want to do with my life? My instinct was business seemed interesting to me. I didn't obviously know, you know, you don't know a lot when you're coming out of college, but it felt like an interesting space. And so I was somewhat pragmatic right. in terms of my approach. And I said, well, I better go learn a, you know, a thing or two. I'd never, I didn't take finance in college. I didn't take macro. I didn't take econ. Yeah. So I felt like my job, you know, I went and ended up securing a job at Morgan Stanley, but my goal there was literally to almost use it as a second phase of school. So, Hey, go understand, you know, go get immersed in the, the real, like the, the real world of finance and understand, is this the type of long-term, you know, is this the type of work that you enjoy doing? So that's, that's, that's how I ended up. I went from Williams to Morgan Stanley, where I did investment banking for three years before, um, as you mentioned, uh, returning to business school. Nice. And then, and then business school, did, did that sort of immediately afford you the opportunity at Google? Like, was that your next move? Like, I know that ended up being like a really perfect fit for you. Right, right. There was, there was a stop along the way. So when I was in, as I mentioned, I was, I've always been an athlete. Sports have always been a huge part of my life, huge part of my identity. Nice. And while I was in business school, I wanted to test the hypothesis that like, could my vocation and avocation match up? So could I go work in sporting goods? And would that be a way to like, you know, wed this personal passion with a, with a professional pursuit? Right. So when I was between my two years at HBS, I went and pitched a, like, I feel like one of the only HBS alums at the time, like in sporting goods in the Boston area uh, he was at a company called Saucony at the time, and I yep. sort of hunted him down and said, "I want to, I want to work for you for the summer." Um, so I had an amazing summer selling uh, sports gear. So I sold it, the company Saucony sells shoes and clothes, and I was they were launching a new line of sports bras, and so I sold sports bras for the entire summer between <laughs> my two years at HBS and I flew all over the country with like a duffel bag of sports bras. You should have seen the horror on the face of like the uh, security folks at Logan when they had to like go through my stuff as a spot check. It was like, (laughs) Oh oh, good Lord. Like how fast can I zip this back up? Um, But it was awesome. You know, it was awesome to be in sporting goods. So after uh, HBS, I went back to that company. What ended up happening was the company was acquired and I, and so all to say, I'd been in sort of a smaller dynamic environment and we got acquired by a larger company. And that is when I ended up exiting and sort of making my move um, to Google. Nice. So it wasn't quite a direct path to Google, yeah. but within about 18 months, I'd found my way there. Got it. And out of curiosity, like you mentioned, like as sports is a part of your identity, like let's, let's take a, let's go off on a side tangent for a moment here. Like, are you, do you still 
like when you can, you know, pandemic aside, like do you, do you, do you play any sports right now? Are there particular activities that you still do? And like, what are your kind of favorite sports to, you know, go and watch, you know, watch a game? Yeah, totally. Well, first I'll just say, Zach, I thought you were going to ask me if I had any good um, sports bra recommendations. So if that's, if that's you know, I, we can take that offline. Yeah, um, we did that. My, my wife, my, my wife might enjoy that. She's been working okay. out a lot more. She, yeah. She could use the extra support. Um, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> so yeah, listen, sports have always, they remain a huge part of my life. Um, you, I'm sure you're going to uh, empathize with a three and a half year old. You know, I have a, a six and eight and a 10 year old. And so yeah. I think sports, sports are a huge part of my life. The ability to do them in an organized way <laughs> comes and goes in terms of the phases of life you're in. Right. But right now, as an example, you know, we've, each winter we build a big rink out in our front yard and I'm skating every day with the kids, you know? Nice. So, and the best days to be totally candid are when the kids are throwing a tantrum and don't want to play. And then my husband and I go out and play our own hockey, which is fabulous. So amazing. yeah, it's a big, you know, and we're always out with the kids. So we're in the phase of life right now where we are helping the kids grow their interest and passion for some of these sports. So it's something that we can end up, you know, doing nice. together over time. I got to double click on the ice rink. I was, I listened to a little bit of toucher and rich. They had Billy Jaffe on for, you know, <laughs> for the, and Jaffe was saying, you know, he hasn't done the ice rink yet. He's worried about his slope in his yard, blah, blah, blah. And Fred toucher's like, Oh, it's such a pain in the butt to have an ice rink. And you use it and your kid, then your kids only want to use it a couple of times. But it sounds like <laughs> if, if you're actually in ice skating, it sounds like that actually ends up being a luxury. I mean, you're, as long well, as you'll get use, use out of yeah, it. Yeah. And listen, Zach, here's the other thing, like pros and cons of a pandemic, right? I mean, the challenge for us is, you know, we have, kids were home, you know, that are doing remote school. And so mm -hmm. the interesting thing is we've yet, you know, we have not ever used our rank more than we have this year. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing because it gives the kids a way to be outside. Like literally they'll have a 30 minute recess from their remote school and we can lace up and skate a little bit. So nice. again, I think it probably ebbs and flows, but it's, uh, and it is, you can ask my husband because he does most of the late night clearing of the rink. <laughs> it is, it is a labor of love, but um, you know, our goal is if we can get the kids to have a lifelong love of outdoor activity, um, it's, it's, it's worth the headaches in the, uh, in the short term. Nice. As, as someone who went to high school in the nineties and college in the nineties, what do you think of the Bruins showing up to the Lake Tahoe game dressed up in nineties? gear? <laughs> You know, listen, I got to be candid. I've always been more of a, of a college hockey fan. Like you, you can't, you can't shake me from the bean pot. I think it is so fun, you Who's know? So, oh, come on. You can't, you can't, you can't put me on the spot on that. I'm a, I'm a Bostonian. I love them all. I love them all. They're, they're all winners. You say heart. that you, you can only, you can say that cause you didn't, but if you go to one of the schools then like me, it's like <laughs> totally. uh, terriers. Yeah, listen, Jack, I don't, yeah. I don't know who's listening out there. This could, this yeah. could, uh, this could take me down a notch in any, in any number of books. So I got to be here. Go. Hey, if, if, if we could see a mayor short sleeve someday, it could be from this, <laughs> this interview and, and you not, and you not throwing your eggs in one of the bean pot baskets. There you go. And we'll know it's meant to be. So, so let's talk, um, by the way, I'm with you, college hockey rules, and I can't wait till it comes back. And I am a Terrier alum, and I can't I wait to take my okay. daughter to a Ganis Arena. <laughs> it's like yeah. just one of the things I've, I've pictured this this winter, like when I'll see like, oh, be, you know, like college yeah. hockey on. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to be able to go to a game. 
can't wait to take totally. uh, like my daughter wants to like she hasn't ridden a train yet she's always talking about daddy's train because she sees the train in uh, beverly and she calls it my train because she knows i can take that into the city for work yeah and like, we'll take we'll take that train together soon that's um, true yeah. wait for it it's gonna be awesome yeah it's gonna be worth it's gonna be worth the wait um so so talk so let's let's talk google i'm i'm, fa- I'm fascinated um and i have like you know, a, a keen interest in, in some of what you were experiencing, like, cause it sounds like the, the evolution of your career at Google somewhat speaks to the evolution of Google, like like your role at Google and then like your role at YouTube. And as yeah. an aside, like I, I'm a, I work in sort of the media and advertising entertainment space, um, do a lot of work in sort of online video world. Um, yeah. but some of those yeah. like media, like, like tubular labs, do you know, tubular? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Like they're a client, like I've worked with them for several years now. And like, so just, um, and I, I mean, back in the early 2010s was working with some of those multi-channel networks like maker studios and, and then full screen. And then the technology companies like epoxy that made it. So all those companies could take their videos and cut them up into derivative assets and market them to drive tune in on YouTube. And I've been really fascinated by, Google's business broadly, but, but probably more specifically YouTube's business because YouTube's business is in a lot of ways teaches you a lot of lessons for what to expect in sort of like streaming television that is, mm-hmm. is, is rising right now. So just throwing a few things at you just with regards to some of my, um, my interest in maybe, you know, I wouldn't call it like expertise, but just experience. Um, but, but talk, so it's, but, but start, you know, from, you know, day one, like what type of role did you go into at Google? And it sounds like you really, you bossed them and bossed them and got to experience a lot of different things there. Um, so, so just like speak, speak sort of freely about that experience and, and what it, and what it meant for you and maybe some of the particular like challenges and successes that you're, that you're most proud of. Yep. So I joined Google in 2007, um, always out of, always from Boston. Um, At the time, Google was opening a presence in the Boston area. So if you sort of rewind to 2007, Google obviously had had a did have a great presence out in the West Coast, but they were starting expansion um, with some international offices and then with some offices elsewhere in the states. So. The the revenue model at Google, really the engine was the mid-market um, sort of mid, mid-market sales was really the engine of Google. And that meant they were, you know, adver- advertising um, mm-hmm. was the model. And most predominantly, there were obviously some large sort of the fortune, you know, 100 style companies. But, but the bulk of revenue in the earlier days came from the longer tail. So businesses um, that were you know, across all sectors, but um, weren't in that sort of bulge bracket of of traditional names. So Google had a mid-market sales organization out in the West Coast, and they were trying to expand to the East Coast. And that is how uh, they landed on Boston as a base Hmm. for that um, organization. Obviously, Boston, as we know, has an amazing set of colleges and universities, so tons of staff, um, sort of staffing availability with with younger professionals, right. and at the time it was really a younger professional was the demographic that would fill so much of the volume of the roles within this sort of mid market organization. No, so we, cool. I was hired. Oh, go ahead. And, and well, I just I mean, it's 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 cool that that I was 
just talking to um, Carly Chase, she uh, works at the Martin Trust Center at MIT, similarly described her childhood as idyllic in Western Mass, okay. um, but also Love was it. just chatting about like she she's building a bridge between like Boston and New York. And one of the, and like one of the reasons that that bridge needs to exist is just because of the density of like universities and young talent in Boston and the, and the, the amount of companies that are like New York based companies that actually have like Boston outposts because like of the talent that is, and oftentimes wants to remain in Boston, um, is such that like, it makes a lot of sense. So, so I'm just, it, 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 I'm nodding my head in approval. Like, Oh, it it makes, it makes sense why, you know, Google would pick Boston. I think at the time I was in college, cause that 2007 was when I graduated from Boston university. And I remember the stat was like during the school year, it was at least, it was slightly over like one out of every four people walking the streets of Boston was a student. And it's just like that, that density of young, um, you know, highly educated talent, um, is, is pretty unrivaled, I think in the States. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it was a, it was a perfect, you know, the perfect strategic reason to put this type of business function within the Boston market. Sure. So, so we opened the office in 2007. That's cool. Like how big was your, sorry, like how big was your team? Like you were kind of part of that, like kind of founding sort of. I was part of what we called landing teams. So whenever Google opened offices, um, in those days, and I mean, they have offices in most places now. So if, they don't open a match frequently, but I think they still follow the same approach, which is they'll take some number of um, sort of current Googlers who are imbued with sort of the philosophy already present at Google. So folks coming from headquarters or, or predominant you know, offices, but then they will always hire a local member of that team. And the idea is that person brings in the local under, you know, just local understanding, local context. And so it was, there was sort of an eight person, what we call landing team. And I was the, I was the one person that was new to Google and I was hired from the Boston market specifically to ensure that if there's any local context, that's important for us to know as we build a presence, you know, I can help represent that. Now, you know, it doesn't seem like that might be as necessary when you're a West coast company going to Boston, but you can imagine that obviously makes a great deal of sense. If you're going to Dublin or you're going to Singapore, you know, like there's a, there's a great need to make sure you have local representation. So yeah, so it was a team of about eight people and the job was to stand up the office and, you know, have an impact and do that pretty quickly. So we did aggressive hiring, you know, as you can, as you knew, walking around as one of, one of, you know, one of four and sort of our, you know, three or four or whatever the stat was, that's what it felt like. So we were at a big presence at all the local colleges and universities, in addition, of course, to openness to recruiting elsewhere, but we were bringing in a high volume of people. And so mm-hmm. it was very rigorous in terms of how to get your operational cadence in place so you can onboard all these folks appropriately um, and really build a culture that literally has to be able to withstand the fact that every two weeks you're bringing in like 15 more people. So, wow. Anyway, so it was amazing. It was like, Oh, go uh, Sorry. You, you were starting. Well, it, it's, it's triggering a question, which is if, you know, at times you were bringing in as many as 15 people every couple of weeks, like in the first year or two years, like what, like you went from, you know, eight people to a hundred people? Like how, how quickly did you scale? Yeah, up? I think very quickly we got up to, you know, the, 
this, the target size of the org was going to be, you know, the, sorry, the numbers are far away from me now, but I want to yeah. say like 250, 300, something wow. like that. Yeah, yeah. So we very quickly, you know, within, <clears throat> I'm going to use rough numbers here, maybe within two years, a year, a year and a half, we, we got to that scale. And then, you know, the pace could, the pace could slow a bit and, and, you know, it could be a little bit more disciplined as you, as you build the volume of the organization. Um, but yeah, we outgrew, you know, the joke was you sort we sort of outgrew the office every, you know, every three months. So we started at, you know, one Broadway, then we moved over, sorry, we were in Kendall square for context. And so we started at one Broadway, then was that we CIC to, was that CIC that, at that point? Um, sort of the CIC, that building. Yeah. Yeah. So we started in that building okay. and then ended up moving to, um, uh, like one of the buildings on main street and then, you know, a second building, a third building. So now the Google complex over there is amazing. It's, it's an awesome part of, you know, develop the development of Kendall Square, in my opinion. I think Google's yeah. been a great, great local employer and player. Yeah. But it was, it was, you know, just those early days of, you know, each office would have two people, then four people, then six people. And then you sort of bust at the seams and right. <laughs> you have tables in every foyer. So <laughs> it was fun. It was were fun. You in, were you in, so you, because I was in CIC starting in like 2009, 10, um, working for fama pr i was up on like the top floor um okay and, and we were like working with you know a good amount of startups from cic and mit and just all over but um so were you like one of those businesses that like had not you know like the sliding door like increase like you had like a certain size space but then you would just like slide a door open and then double your space and kind of grow grow like like were you part of that sort of like cic um tenant model I'm trying to remember. We, we, I don't, at the very beginning, we, we might've actually had like a more traditional CI, CIC space, Got it. but I think quickly we then moved, we were still within the building, but we were sort of going, okay, we got two floors. Okay. We got three floors. And then nice. it was sort of like, okay, we're outgrown. We're going to pop over to the next building, like two floors, three floors, four floors, pop to the next building. So yeah. we migrated around, uh, <laughs> we migrated around Kendall square um, nice. in those early days. Yeah. You tore it all around Kendall. And Kendall's yeah, getting a makeover like, now. Did you see the news uh, recently? Well, I, I mean, the whole, I would yeah. say like the whole area has been, it's, anyway, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I'm so pleased that, um, you know, I think how, how the, the development has, has gone. And I think it's, um, from what I can tell, I think it's, it's welcome in Cambridge and welcome in the neighborhood. So totally. I mean, it's already been beautified in my view, just in the past 15 years. And there's like a new beautification project to make it even more like, and I get add a little more green. And, and there was just, I, I recently caught my eye, like in the last two weeks, there were some plans, sort of concepts, um, designs shared, just Kendall square getting like a beautification makeover. I'm like, Oh wow. More like that's <laughs> incredible. I can't, I, another reason I can't wait to go into the city and, and visit right. these, these spots. Um, right. so, so, so talk about that, role as a because how many years total were you at google um uh, between 11 and 12 okay. so um so let me see so i started as i said in roles within this mid-market sales organization and so right. worked um, most predominantly with healthcare advertisers and financial services advertisers both are very highly regulated spaces you know it's an interesting time as they were trying to bring some of their media online and 
how does that work and how can we do that in a fair way for consumers and in a um, respectful way from a regulatory uh, standpoint. So I worked in those industries about halfway through my time at Google is when I moved into this into more of a like, product and commercial role. So Google was obviously scaling in an amazing way, was bringing in a lot of um, new businesses, new companies, new approaches. And right. so I started my work in this part of Google when Google um, acquired ITA, which is another awesome Boston business. You know, that was um, a, 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 it's a travel, it's a player in the travel space. And so Google made an acquisition and they were going to be bringing a lot of that vertical expertise and travel into Google writ large. And we were trying to think about how, what does that mean from an advertising model standpoint? And so I worked first within that industry to help think about, we have this amazing new asset. What can we do from an advertising standpoint to bring value to our customers? And then sort of as, you know, each year went by, I would, you know, work on different of Google's new products and then ended up with YouTube where I stayed and, and did a lot of work. So my, my role at YouTube was really thinking about commercialization of YouTube. So how do you make sure um, the amazing engine that is YouTube be, can be a profitable place for brands uh, to advertise? So thinking about how do we bring monetization to, to YouTube, the beautiful thing is you have users who are developing all this ridiculously wonderful content. You have users who want to consume that content, but there has to be a revenue model to support that. And so the advertisers are the critical sort of third step in the in the process who are paying money to be present on the platform and that money, you know, feeds back to the creators who can then, you know, continue to create uh, great content and it obviously makes the platform predominantly um, free and accessible for users. So that, that is the work I was doing. I was thinking about how to bring YouTube successfully to market um, around the globe. It was, a, it was a global mandate. So thinking about, you know, what is different in Europe versus each market in Asia versus each, you know, each market in the North and the South Americas. Interesting. How would you say Boston compares to other regions around the world in terms of utilizing video, the video platform? And, and sort of the di- distribution one to many in the, in sort of all the opportunities afforded by YouTube, like in the time you were there, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. In the time we were there, um, you know, when we think broadly at the time, the, the North American market. So most predominantly the United States was very advanced in terms of the utilization of video. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that had to do with regulation, sort of the free the free use of, of online tools, et cetera. Where we were doing a lot of our work was going into markets that um, had been maybe less saturated. Go, you know, think of all the sub-Saharan African com- countries. Right. There's so many places in the world where probably, you know, bandwidth is an issue. Utilization is an issue. Data in and of itself gets expensive and almost inaccessible. And obviously, video is high, high data. So what we were trying to think through is what are different ways we can make, you know, video accessible and locally appropriate and useful in markets um, more globally. Interesting. Yeah. Just from my perspective, the, um, 
I would say that Boston in general is like underutilized media, like media tools. Um, sometimes okay. to, to its own, de- like and not necessarily like, so like, I'm curious if, if you would or wouldn't comment on that and, and by all means disagree. Um, uh, but it just seems like a lot of the creators kind of in the United States of the past 10, 15 years are from a very different, you know, large number of places, um, outside of, 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 of Boston, which is something that I, I see changing in some ways, but I think we're still, I, I'd still consider Boston kind of laggards when, in terms of like being like media producer distributors and which, which hopefully changes. Cause I mean, there's the, the ability to, um, impress upon a large audience, you know, through, uh, digital distribution is, is, you know, easy in the sense that you can get the content up there. Obviously there's, you know, there's quite a, quite a bit of resources required to actually make sure that you can get people to see that content. Um, but I've done my own analysis and it's just, it's, it always surprises me that given the density of brain power and the amazing innovations and, and all sorts of things that are sort of like almost hiding in plain sight in Boston. Um, it just, it, there's, it's, there's like a lack of kind of digital media discovery of, of, of those um, of those brands, of those tech clusters, um, from like a kind of video from a video standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would defer to you on that. I trust your instincts. What I can say is like on the, I mean, most often media has followed tradition, like digital media has followed traditional media in terms of like market structure. So as an example, a lot of creators, are in Southern California or a lot of creators are in New York. Like there's where, where you find high yeah. concentration of traditional media that has often correlated with also the high concentration of media that is then designed to go online. So, you know, over time, those things, as you said, should diminish because the beauty of some of the online media creation is it doesn't need, it's not quite as intensive in terms of alternate infrastructure that you would find in traditional media, right. but you know, definitely given the, you know, the, the concentration of, of folks who are thinking about media in those big markets, it doesn't surprise me that traditional, you know, the, the trends in traditional media would be manifest with digital media as well. Yeah, that's a good point. One thing that, one thing that could help change things a bit is like another company we work with really closely is, is Vizio, uh, the TV maker. And, it's interesting in the pandemic really pushed uh, a surge in connected TV viewership, specifically like ad supported TV, free ad supported television sort of content. And, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of sort of apps just kind of launched directly to Vizio, direct to Roku, et cetera, et cetera. And some of the free ad supported channels that are doing really well are like, like niche channels, like more like, like subcategories of content, like dudes fixing watches with their hands. Um, and it's like the you like the type of content that like crushes on YouTube, like when clustered together and like put out in, in an appropriately branded app on a connected TV, like actually has like decent little audiences. And then the other trend that seems to be happening is sort of like regional trends because local news isn't necessarily strong in certain places. And so sort of like m- more digital, um, new sort of like digital upstart media companies that can, 
cobble together, um, feeds of content and then like, you know, provide like, you know, a, a Boston innovation channel on, on Vizio, like should like, hopefully as a goal, I mean, certainly a goal of mine for the near future, but like, and here's a segue and we can start talking about like the leadership consortium, but like, I think there's real opportunity for, you know, like-minded groups in, you know, an innovation community like Boston to, you know, have somewhat of a, you know, aligned, coordinated video media strategy. And then you got like great best in class, like video hosting sort of providers, like best in class in the world that are right here in Boston, like Wistia is in Cambridge. Uh, and, and then sort of, you know, introducing to the market, like, Hey Boston, like, do you want to consume and get to know like, like the, latest, greatest, like things from sort of the, you know, leaders and innovators in your innovation economy, like here's a new channel. Like you can find it on your connected TV, um, platform of choice, whether it's Roku, Vizio, like go find this app. Um, so, so it, so it could be interesting. I think that that's sort of the next wave in media that, that hopefully, um, hopefully Boston kind of finds a way to catch. I'd love to see it. I'm a big fan of, of Boston catching any any waves of yeah. uh, of, of great innovation. <laughs> um, so, so what was it? Um, it was probably hard to. I mean, it seems like you loved working at Google and YouTube. Like, what was it that um, compelled you to kind of turn the page into a new chapter in your career? And and uh, how are you approached or how did sort of the conversation around you um, assuming the role as CEO of the leadership consortium sort of, how did that start to take shape? Yeah. So I, I'm a, um, I'm a big believer in like you, you are, you are the owner of your career. You know, you mm-hmm. got You need to make sure you are in control of your career and your career is not controlling you. Yeah. So for, for me, I had spent an amazing decade at Google and I would do it again 100 times over. It's an unbelievable company. I'm a huge believer in tech as a force for good. It was where I feel like I grew up as a professional. Um, And I always tell people like I left a dream job for an even dreamier job. And that's, that's what, that's what you want to that is what I would wish for anybody who's listening, which is nice. you want to be leaving something when you feel rich, when you feel fulfilled, when you feel like I have learned amazing things and I leave with a full heart. And so for me, I hit the 10 year mark and it's just a good opportunity to sit down and have a good conversation with yourself because 10 years is a long time. You don't have all that many decades in your life. And for me, my hope was I'll have a few amazing professional chapters and a chapter at Google was absolutely outstanding. And also my instinct was there's more great work to do in the world. I was, I'm, I'm hugely passionate around topics um, around equity um, as a woman in first finance and then sporting goods and then technology. Like I myself have been in many spaces where gender equity is not what it should be. Um, And, you know, also obviously come from a place of great privilege in that I am a fabulous, but white female. So I, I don't have half, I don't have, that's an expression of half the battle. I don't have any of the battle that um, is, is, you know, a lot of folks are up against if they're, you know, coming from a black indigenous or people of color, um, you know, background. So Mm -hmm. 
for me, I had a passion around equity. I had a passion around growth businesses and a passion around excellence. What you'll see thematically through my professional experience is connection to really high integrity brands and people. And so Frances Fry, who's a professor at the Harvard Business School, and her wife, Anne Morris, who's a fabulous author, they're both amazing people. They're both incredibly well-known. They're also great fixtures in Boston, which is important to me. They had an idea for this business, and they needed an operator. And so it was a perfect mix because it was a, you know, a, a, a mission I cared deeply about. It was an opportunity for me to grow as a professional because I would be leading and growing an organization personally. And paramount to me is it was Boston born and bred. And as I said, you know, I loved my time at Google and, you know, I was not in a headquarter office. And I think it was really important for me as I looked around the local market to say there's so many amazing things happening here. Like how can I take a turn trying to grow something here? So that others have the opportunity to experience an amazing place that that is rooted here in Boston. Oh, nice! So, that's, so that that all happened in 2018. Right. So we joined forces in 2018, and it's been a it's been a fairy tale ever since. Nice. <laughs> running and, uh, running this business, yeah. That's great. So so the so talk to me about the some of the mechanics of, of like how the the fairy tale unfolds in the term in terms of programs, right? So you have like a, because you have a spring program, it sounds like you're oversubscribed for like, maybe you can give some details too on on folks that might be interested in like a fall program, but like it, and like, yeah, give give a sense of like the, the, the breadth of what the program or programs you offer and, and sort of, you know, some of those, some of those goals attached. Yep. So the, 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 macro description on just what we do as a business. So I said about a little bit about this at the top of the call, but basically, you know, our mission is more inclusive leadership. Our mission is to help change the look and feel of leadership. Mm-hmm. We do that by partnering with companies. So we are, you know, we are a B2B. So as an example, like I partner with Google as a client, Alphabet mm-hmm. as a client, IBM as a client, and those fabulous organizations. And I should say, amazing Boston organizations like HubSpot, Nuance, Saltify. There's great Boston companies in the mix. And those companies send, you know, choose um, elements of their leader, you know, members of their leadership um, ranks and send those folks through our programming together. And so it's a really unique opportunity for professionals from different organizations to come together we ask the companies strive to send at least 50% women and 50% um, BIPOC with the goal being we are a big believer that inclusion begets diversity. So there's no such thing as diversity without inclusion. Like you and I might have very different points of view, but we're not going to share them with one another if we don't feel like that opinion is going to be honored. Mm-hmm. So we're big on inclusion. So we're not a you know black only, women only. The idea is, hey, bring all these amazing leaders. Make sure you're giving disproportionate access to those who have not had it in the past. Right. But then bring this rich group of humans together. And the idea is they're in different sectors, different stages of business. So we have great you know, growth companies. We have companies that are really large. And the idea is there's richness in that diversity, the diversity of background, sector, job. We bring them together and put them through a development program. Given our um, attachment to 
Harvard Business School, we the, we um, partner only with faculty from the Harvard Business School to deliver the classwork within our program. So there's a class element, and folks will hear from just the thought leaders in all these different um, areas of business. And then we have a lot of what we call community programming, where we are connecting these leaders to one another. We are bringing in really fabulous and different leaders from businesses to come in and talk and engage with the group. And the idea is through the richness of that experience, these leaders come out feeling all the more confident in themselves, their own personal leadership style, their ability to lead and manage teams in an inclusive um, and strategic way, and have a better command of the business. So we cover key, you know, a lot of business acumen as well. So it's been amazing. We've trained, uh, we've accelerated, you know, 2,000 awesome, awesome leaders and you know, people ask me what I love about my job. It's that, first of all, I get to connect with these amazing humans. And second of all, I get to see them go back into their companies and just do unbelievable work and pay it forward. So that's a little bit about us. As, nice. as, as you said, yeah, we, um, we run programs two seasons a year in the spring and the fall. Okay. Our spring program is fabulously full. Um, but in the fall, you know, we are always interested in bringing in um, – New partners who, you know, are obvious for us, you know, we want to be mission aligned in terms of finding companies who have a huge focus on human capital and an interest in inclusivity um, and a commitment to ensuring that leadership um, looks a lot different in the years to come than it has uh, in the years in the years prior. Amen. Hell yeah. Amen, Zach. Hell yeah. Amen. Um, Could not happen fast enough um totally yeah i like the way you put it too like it just it doesn't it's not that it, it's it's a pretty I, I like the pragmatic approach of like it doesn't like it's not the leadership consortium isn't only for um women and, and people of color i mean but but like appropriately sort of requiring sort of the the, the businesses that you're providing um these programs for like you're requiring them to, to sort of know bring in a disproportionate amount of uh of women and people of color to sort of give those um groups that have been wildly underserved for far too long um you know access to opportunities to be the badasses that they are and 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 thrive and 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 sort of imagine so so the program itself um is it like how many how many weeks does it does it run and and I imagine like, is it a little bit like, I mean, it's in partnership, like there's a little bit of that business school vibe too, where like there's, there's the one to many kind of education. There's maybe a little bit of intimacy, like one-on-one. And then there's also like peer to peer magic yep. as well. Yeah. Yep. And yep. That's exactly right. So in terms of sort of the brass tacks and how it works, yeah, the program runs over a number of months. The part of our model is the belief that, um, every professional is busy, but especially folks from underrepresented backgrounds, you know, more predominantly women are responsible. Um, again, this isn't always the case, but more predominantly are the first point of defense on any domestic tasks. Mm-hmm. You have uh, women in, in underrepresented, you know, um, black and indigenous uh, people of color often uh, feel like they're already um, being asked 
a lot. And so our model is to deliver everything virtually. So you don't need to travel. You don't need to be gone for two weeks. You don't need to be gone on your weekends. Mm -hmm. The idea is you can do this all virtually. It is synchronous education, you know, so it's a two-way conversation. So classes happen at a set time, as an example, or speaker series happen at a set time. So there's high engagement. But the idea is you should be able to do this successfully while also doing amazing work in your day job, which we know is critical if we want you to, you know, stay and accelerate as as a leader. Um, so that's tactically how it happens. It's delivered remotely. Um, Again, it's over a number of months, and we run it uh, twice a year or two seasons a year. And each season, we run one instance sort of during daytime hours and then one overnight to catch um, the Asia-Pacific markets. A lot of our multinational customers want to be able to deliver programming um, sort of equitably to, to folks in different offices. So we sort of run an overnight instance that services um, time zones uh, in their preferred working hours. Amazing. Um, I have a couple other questions for you. One that we covered briefly in the pre-podcast Q and A, and yeah. I, I love your altruistic answer of sort of ideally, you know, TLC's impact in ten years um, would would be that you'd, you'd essentially be out of business because everyone will have mastered inclu- inclusive leadership. Like, you want <laughs> totally. to expand on that at all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, people like, and I say that with like complete completely frankly and and with audacity like my hope nice again we train you know our whole model is how can we change the look and feel of leadership like my deep desire would be the look and feel of leadership is so different in 10 years that people don't need to be reminded of the importance of it and then i go on to tackle the next big hairy thing that i see you know causing a thorn in our collective side so I, i say that like with with like um with with truth and hope that it you know we are solving a problem that goes away um that would be ideal (laughs) that would be amazing we would all be we would all be better off for it oh yeah yeah and and i think just in in more and just broadly speaking i think we're in agreement you and i and i think most of the um a good amount of the the woke folks of of this this year, 2021 that we're now in, like understand the value of sort of addressing um, the inequality that exists in our yeah. society. Um, but when I, when I asked you like ahead of the, ahead of the podcast, like most important issue impacts in the world, which I couldn't agree more. It's like, it's, it's the environment, right? Like that's our baseline. We need, we, we need a, we need a planet, you know, we need a, we need air to breathe. Um, one interesting, you know, conversation that I had with, um, with Carly Chase, again, I'll mention from MIT is like, she, she, um, she mentioned that like the Martin trust center and they're, they're trying to like, they're allowing entrepreneurs to kind of pursue all sorts of different things, but they are trying to nurture and support, um, certainly folks from underserved communities, but also nurture and support them, uh, uh, working on innovating sort of new solutions to, really difficult challenges in the healthcare and environment mm-hmm. arenas. And then obviously yeah. you have like, you know, it's arguably the world is certainly the, the America's biggest climate tech incubator and Greentown labs, right, right there in, in Somerville. Um, so I'm just curious, like, just, I mean, speaking freely, like you, you mentioned that the most important issue in the world you'd like to see solved is obviously environment and inequality. Um, are there any, 
any causes or just initiatives or just, or, or just general thoughts you'd like to share on, 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 the, on those topics and maybe sort of particular, you know, points of, of hope, um, for yeah, us to yeah. kind of plow forward. Yeah. You know, so I always, you know, my question is always in, you know, when people ask this question, my answer is always environment only because like, it seems so baseline. Like if we, if we destroy the, if, if we like, if, if we sink the raft, <laughs> we're, we're going to drown, you know? Yeah. Nothing so, else matters. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I feel that it's a huge and worthy, um, problem to attack. It is not my own, like my personal area of expertise is, it's just not, it's not my area of expertise. So on that front, you know, I rely on, you know, I, I can do things, you know, I can donate money. I can do things like that, but it's not a place that I, that I feel personally that I, I have the expertise. Inequality is something I feel quite passionately about and something I felt I might have a little bit more direct ability to affect, you know? And so when I think of inequality, I mean, we're sitting here in the United States, we're sitting here in the East coast of the United States, but in all the work I do, like when I think inequality, I mean, it is like it, from a global standpoint, it's your inequality from access to resources, inequality to access to education, inequality, wealth, inequality, health, inequality. You know, so there's so many, there's, if you sit and think about the problem, like you'll probably break down and hide under a rock, you know? So what I do is think about, okay, what might be within my personal, within my personal scope? What can I, like, what can I do as a human every day? And that's a lot of why I'm doing the work I'm doing right now. You know, I'm doing, I'm tackling a, a tiny segment of inequality, which is, hey, in businesses today, leadership is not equal in terms of racial demographics nor gender demographics. You know, so I'm, I'm tackling one part of it and one might say a highbrow part of it. Whereas, you know, it would be maybe better world service if I made more equitable access to water, you know. Um, but I'm a big believer on, like, each one of us should do our part and do what we are best enabled to do. So for me, my passion area is around inequality. I happen to have great experience as a leader in business. I happen to have skills that allow me to stand up a business. And so the question for me is, therefore, what do I want that business to stand for? And, you know, how do I, how do I bring my best strengths? And so that, for me, that's sort of why I'm doing some of the work I'm doing today. But I, I would never want to confuse a listener into thinking, like, this is the biggest, you know, this is the biggest problem we have in the world. I'm sure there are bigger problems, but this is my way of saying, hey, as a human, I'm going to try to do my part in the small time I have in this world. And this is one way that I'm going to do my part. That, that, that's great. I mean, and, and just one thought that comes to mind and sort of like the accessibility of the leadership consortium sort of programming, like, is there, you know, you mentioned the 10 year goal is to like, not, not need the leadership consortium anymore yeah. because of such a profound impact is part of that profound impact potentially could it derive from like open sourcing TLC a bit, potentially, or even just for like underserved communities. And like, let's just keep it micro for a second. Like just the state of Massachusetts. Like I yep. starting to reconnect with friends of mine that I grew up with in Methuen that have seen a lot of our friends pass away from drug overdoses and just yeah. like really, yeah. really tough situations. And there's this one, there's this one kid doing like helping feed the homeless and, 
And there's, there's another group that's teaching coding to folks. And like, there's, there's all these, like, there's these cool little pockets of like hyper local. Yeah. Yeah. Like hyper local. And, and it's, and, but, but then they're, they all sort of exist. And, and I'm taking this like macro kind of approach to it. Like, well, if I can connect you all and connect you to like the Merrimack Valley chamber of commerce and like make this more programmatic and kind of, and then like offer, you know, try to offer more of what you're doing, sort of expose it to others and incentivize people in Lowell to do what the group in Lawrence is doing, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, is there, so again, just at a hyper-local standpoint, like, is there a way for TLC to kind of expose its, you know, l- some levels of its programming to yeah. underserved communities, like in the Merrimack Valley, like just throw that out there. Um, and if, and if there is, and, and when there is, um, let me know, because that, that's the sort yeah. of stuff that, that I could see there being a real economy of scale to what you're doing. And then obviously kind of partner up, you know, across, you know, not just across the States, but across the globe and like, you know, the sub-Sahara, like where, where, where there's really underserved populations that, that would benefit. I'm just curious, like, is that kind of part of the go-to-market? Um, am I kind of scratching into anything there that you've been thinking about or you're already planning? Well, let me give you, let me give you two answers. Yeah. The, the first one is a quite specific answer, which is, we have a scholarship that we a scholarship program that we offer when we run our programs and we call it our social impact scholarship and the idea is you know we are a business to business model so we are not a business to individual model however knowing that we have powerful content um that brings powerful results we have stood up a scholarship whereby we do allow individuals to apply and we select a group and we put them through our programming um, directly. So like as a very direct answer to your question, we do have a way for underrepresented folks to access our programming, even if they're not connected into one of these amazing, amazing client companies with whom we partner. Sure. So that's a very direct answer, but one to click up a minute, a more macro sort of answer or thought I will give you is I think there's a lot there's there's competing schools of thought around what are the best platforms for change you know so when you think at a really large level um, you have government so are there things that the government can do and you have corporations and I'm not gonna (laughs) I'm not gonna get us into politics I'm not gonna go down that route but what I want to say is sometimes the largest platforms for change, you know, might not be who you expect or might not be who you expect. So as an example, I have a big belief that some of these businesses with whom we partner who are amazing household names, really strong brands, I have a belief that if if those companies are able to change, you know, the look and feel of their demographics, that might have a more outsized impact than, as an example, um, a different approach from a government. Now, that's a big statement, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But I would say I've seen in my work, I've seen when companies do the right thing and can lead from the front, that has amazing ripple effects in local communities and in, like, nations, as an example. So when I think about Google, as an example, I think – 
it was an amazing platform to have influence. And there's a lot that you could do from a technical standpoint that Google was better enabled to do and make services and information universally accessible in a way that would have been difficult for non-tech players. So I mentioned that only to say, with the business I'm running today, I, I have taken the strategic bet that I'm partnering in with companies and corporations because I think if they care about it, they will resource against it and there's a real chance for change. Yeah. And that is, so it runs a little contrary to, hey, would you make this available at the hyper-local level? I try to thread that needle by offering these scholarships, but I still, from a um, hypothesis standpoint, believe we might have a, a more um, substantial point of leverage and chance for change if we partner with some of these um, organizations who are who are funded and if if, right. if mission aligned could make a real difference. Right. And their in their ways and through their through their sort of the channels that they're looking to impact, you know, how Correct. they're looking to impact communities. Yeah. yeah, that makes it that makes a ton of sense. Um and in the scholarship, maybe we can even include that in the um when we put the post out, uh just the the scholarship that exists. Is that like one or two like how many is it like a scholarship per per program? Yeah, sort so of this thing? cycle we have six recipients coming cool. through, which is which is fun. And um, for lack of any better answer, it's like it's not always like a hard line. We look and say how many how many spots do we have available? What is the application volume? What is the need? Like, does this look like this is a really immediate need for someone? Could they come next cycle or not? So. Cool. I don't have a good answer on what the volume will be in the fall. It certainly won't be fewer than that. Um, and my hope is my hope is it'll be more. That's great. Thanks for sharing that, Kara. And and you just bet. in general, thanks for all the all the all the time today. I'm I'm curious. Well, so it's a little warmer. Like, will the short sleeve family still be hitting the uh, front yard ice rink this weekend? So Zach, here's what you need to know, and I have told <laughs> many friends this. Our rink is basically your hedge against winter. So <laughs> if it's really cold, you're like, awesome. I've got a rink and I can skate on it. And if it's warm and the ice melts, you're like, awesome. It's warm out. I can go do other things. <laughs> <laughs> so I am, if, if, if I can't skate this weekend, I am pleased because it means I am probably doing another fun, fabulous, warm, warmer outside activity with the kids. Right on. Yeah. Sun's shining. Get out for a walk. It is today. So maybe, maybe you'll, hopefully you'll have some you time bet. to I'm enjoy hoping. it. Yeah. I'm well, hoping. Th thank you so much for all the time, Kara. Really, really appreciate it and looking forward to sharing this with the community. Super fun for me, Zach. I appreciate it. All right. You have a great day. All right. Take care. Che Cheers, Boston. 